Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for people interested in reinventing what education is. I'm Rob McLeod and joined, as often happens, That's right. by Brennan O'Leary. Hey, Rob. How are you, Brennan? Right time, right place. How are you? You didn't answer my question, which is, how are you doing? I answered it in... Maybe you did. Right time, right place. I answered it in the way in the way that an Englishman would answer, how do you do? And how do you do? Mm-hmm. And how do you do again? That's an actual cultural thing? Yeah, how do you do? Like we say, how do you do? And the response is, how do you do? I think. Unless I've been doing it wrong my entire life. Like you North Americans with things like, what's up? But then we would respond with an answer. We wouldn't just throw the question back to somebody. It depends if you're a jackpot. You'd say, it's going. That's irritating. How are you, Rob? I'm pretty good. Not too bad. Yourself? <laughs> I'm all right. What's, what's going down in your world? Well, interesting things school-related yesterday. My wife and I and child, we went out to a Waldorf school Christmas market. The Waldorf education approach is one that I kind of know a lot of little details about, but it's not an approach that I feel I could summarize or do any justice to. But Waldorf education are quite popular in different parts of Europe, quite popular in certain parts of Germany and definitely seems to be big here in Belgium based off of Rudolf Steiner's teachings. You know, if we were to try and translate it into our kind of jargon, I would say this is very much the kind of inclusion looking type of school. And it was just a blast, like aesthetically beautiful. You know, you could see the students had done everything like created Christmas decorations I've never seen before out of natural materials, like using plants and leaves to create the materials, which gave a very nice aesthetic. All the food is very healthy. Most of it, from what I understood, was grown by the students. So the pumpkin soup we were having grown and made by the students and all these sorts of things. And just really cool to see the level of student involvement right down to the, my wife said they were wax pastel tickets handcrafted by the students um, and all these things. So really cool to see and just kind of cool to get a little glimpse into the parental and child culture in a Waldorf school. It makes me very interested to, to see more because it just seemed like, oh yeah, I would want to be here. I would want my kid here. I know I have a few hangups around some of the metaphysics behind Steiner's kind of ideas, but the actual day-to-day practical thing of how they play out, it's like, oh yeah, this just looks like the kind of place I or my child should be spending their time. This seems great. Yeah, I don't know a lot about it. I, I know that it has a, a big emphasis on the arts and on creative expression. I'd like to know more, especially here that it's suited really well to younger children. But this is one of the things we lose as we go up through school often, that creativity. And so I'd like to see how that's applied to slightly older kids. So fill us in on the details as you learn more and experience that rub. Yeah, thankfully with my wife's family, there are about six friends and I think two at least of my wife's relatives who've gone through the Waldorf schooling right from day one straight through till they were 18 years old. And I've, through conversations, heard little bits of the incredibly hands-on types of projects they do later on in school. And just one small meta comment, I don't know if this is unique to all Waldorf schools or if this was just this school in particular, but what I noticed was the playground. It was basically just a wide open grass field and there were a handful of items. But in my mind, I was noticing, oh, this looks very different than a traditional school playground because when I think of a school playground, I think of structures and features like a slide and jungle gym and the structures that are there and then the kids interact 
on them. Here, there were like a handful of things like stacks of tires and like wooden blocks that kids would take and then create their own structures out of. And, you know, it's a small detail, but it was like, oh, that's interesting that there's no structure that exists here permanently. Rather, there are items for the students to interact with and create the actual environment for themselves. So one small meta comment, but I'll leave that maybe for now. That is cool. And I think we're going to come to that at some point in one of the episodes. We had a chat the other day about traditional schools kind of obsession almost with recess. And we've had so many discussions in our schools over what kids should or shouldn't be doing at recess. And it's really interesting to see how each kind of school system might interpret it. And obviously the kind of Steiner brand is on the progressive end of that spectrum. And so we would expect a Waldorf school to to be promoting that kind of self-development and that self-expression. So it's kind of in line with what we would we would expect and we can dig into that a lot more. And how are you doing? Yeah, I guess in terms of my, my schooling, I'm just still getting used to sitting down and chatting with teachers about their own progression and their own kind of challenges. And we're looking into the idea right now of having a math coach. So we're trying to give a role to someone who will meet with the teachers in the school to discuss their conceptual math. So as an IB school and as a school that's pushing more towards that uh, application of skills and self-development in, in the area of maths, we want to give teachers as much support in bringing inquiry learning into maths. And we'll kind of like exploring some ideas of how to do that. Cool. Before we launch into today, let's do our In a Nutshell segment where we kind of recap what we're talking about. Uh, for anybody who's new, uh, who may have just seen like the name Reinventing Education, think, yep, education needs some reinventing. Bren and I, we've been kind of laying out a map for discussing schools so that we can have like a larger, more expansive conversation about education. And Bren, I believe it's my turn to try to explain all of our little pieces. Yeah, I'm going to throw you some of the titles at you and you're going to set out what our global agenda is. So in education, everybody wants what is best for kids. But of course, we have very different ideas about what is best for kids. And so education has three main aims, which are? Occupational preparation. So getting you ready to work when you're done school. And that might involve getting you ready for the next stage of school. Second aim is the cultivation of citizenship. So getting you ready to participate in the society. And the third aim, self-development, helping you to grow and mature as a person. Excellent. And each school or educational establishment operates from a particular value. What are these core values? So we are identifying three core values and then sort of a bonus fourth one, which is sort of our focus here on the program. Our values are security, opportunity, inclusion, and integration. Now, if you are familiar with Lalu or Ken Wilber's work or Spotted Dynamics, you'll recognize that these stages match any of those developmental systems in a similar way, but we are kind of bringing our own own terminology to this to make it school specific. And of course, everybody has the best of intentions, wants to do what's best for kids, but the how or the what we do is informed by the values. And essentially, Brennan and I are saying if you take any justification for something in education and you trail it back far enough, the original root of it will be one of these four values that's motivating or inspiring your actions or worldview or ways that you go about doing things. And finally, there's eight aspects of school or education that we can look at. What are those eight aspects, Rob? If we were talking about what education is, there are eight different things that we could look at. And to not include any of these, we do this sort of at our own peril. Or if our view is not including these, these things will probably cause unexpected problems for us. So the eight aspects we are talking about 
are the environment, so the physical space, the systems, how things are organized, the practices, what is done, the resources, the materials or the stuff that is being used. We can talk about the communities. So who are the overlapping groups of people? And of course, you can be a member of more than one community at any given time. There is the culture of education or schools. So what are the shared agreements and the ways that we know to do things together? And then on the individual level, we have person's own beliefs and as well as their own personal reactions to what is going on moment by moment in the educational experience. And the hope is that if we look from these eight aspects and we take into account the core values and the aims, we can be on the same page when we talk about where we want to go next. Uh, did you want to give a shout out? Did you want to give an anti-advertisement as I like to call them? I did. Uh, so the last few episodes, we've, Bren and I have just shared some of the things that we've been looking into or reading about recently. My suggestion this week is a film and it was a documentary on school circles. This was connected to a topic that Bren and I were first introduced to through an interview we did with Armin from the Integralis Tagesschule in Switzerland. It's an incredible documentary that talks about a way to organize not only communication, but the actual structuring of your school and the organization of your school. This documentary did a great job. If I remember correctly, it was mostly schools in the Netherlands. Really well produced, gives a thorough explanation of the approach to this, the strengths, the drawbacks, all these sorts of things. So if you're interested in checking out, you can watch it online for like $4. And the link that I found it through was the wanderingschool.org. So W-O-N-D-E-R-I-N-G school.org. And it's called Circle Schools. I think this is a topic I'm most interested in coming back to because it's a real, I think, integration approach to the organization of a school and the, the including of multiple perspectives and not just group consensus, but really tapping into the wisdom of a group. Marmin is really leading the way in kind of horizontal leadership in his school. You can go back and listen to the interview with him. It was awesome. And we hear about democratic schools and education paradigms that are aiming to give ownership and agency over to the students. The more we can find out about that, the better. So over the last few episodes, we've been taking apart what a security-minded school looks like. So we've talked about the different values that impact what education looks like, and we're saying that security is one of the values which first showed up on the scene historically. So it represents kind of a traditional approach to school. If you're into Lulu or Spa Dynamics, this would be the blue or the amber value system. Essentially, this value informed what education looked like from the earliest Prussian model in the late 1700s, arguably still up to today. There are many schools and many contexts where schools are largely operating within this security mindset. Now, Bren and I had attempted to do a bit of a thought experiment where we tried to put this security value into isolation. Because in 2019, you're going to have the opportunity value having some influence in your school. You're going to have the inclusion value having some influence in your school. And you're not going to see just the straight up security value in isolation calling the shots on everything. So Bren and I, we've kind of created, I wouldn't say a straw man, but perhaps slight over-exaggeration of what a fully security-based school would look like. However, almost everything we're saying is either coming from actual experiences Brennan or I have had in schools, and we've now been able to see like, oh yeah, that was kind of the security value in action calling the shots there. Or we're taking things just sort of like that are historically acknowledged as things that have been done in schools. So that's kind of our context. We've discussed many different things. We've taken a school visit. We've talked to a head teacher to see kind of where the principal 
skills at and all these things. We've talked about aspects of discipline and things like that. Today, our focus will be on the often hotly debated school uniforms. We will talk about assemblies and we'll also talk about the teaching philosophy within the security value. Let's dive into uniforms first. So in our visit to the security-minded traditional school, we saw all the students wearing the correct uniform. It's a fairly traditional uniform, as we would expect. So maybe blazers, maybe sweaters, maybe ties, skirts, pants, and so on. What would be the baby or the benefit, even in 2019, of having a school uniform, Rob? So usually the number one case that you hear in 2019 for a uniform is that it removes unnecessary necessary inequalities in school and that by everybody wearing the same outfit, you don't get into the cliques of who can afford, you know, the $100 shirt versus the kids walking around in hand-me-downs or that sort of thing. So this is one of the babies, you could say, the baby in the bathwater of having a school uniform at the security value. One other kind of nice thing is like, you know, it does perhaps set up having like nice clothes and just some respect for the materials that you have and that these aren't your own personal clothes. This is, you know, part of like your, your uniform your connection to something greater than yourself. So I'd say the bigger baby in this case is just that removing of unnecessary inequalities in school. It's sort of like helping to remove one thing that can take up a lot of time or really be a psychological or social challenge for a student. We can remove that by having a uniform. Yeah, and the other thing that we see in a lot of these instances with the traditional school is that it helps you to feel more a part of the school as a whole. If that is what the school is aiming to do, and it is in a traditional school, that's going serve that purpose. Which makes sense at the security value because it's reinforcing that sense of like the group, our culture, our way of being, our tradition is bigger than you and and the group is more important than you. That's sort of uh, the hidden kind of perception we've talked about at the security value between, you know, the, the collective and the individual. However, it's interesting and I won't jump around too much here, but one of our later values, the inclusion value, which would connect with the kind of green value in spiodynamics, it sometimes actually does bring back uniforms but it doesn't have that kind of military approach to it or the like fancy tie and all that. They might bring in uniforms, again, for that same purpose, to remove the unnecessary inequalities and provide that, that sense of belonging. But the way they do it is rather than have some adult choose what the uniform is, the students actually work to create the uniform as a way to express themselves. You know, I've seen it down to the level where like each class, each grade would have their own uniform that they create so they can express themselves and represent who they are. So I, I kind of like that later version of it if you're going to do uniforms. But at the security value, yeah, you're most likely seeing sort of prim, proper, old school, nice clothes. And you know, this has a secret second function, which is if you're running around in nice, tidy clothes, you're not supposed to get them dirty. And because you're really going to get told off and you're going to get in trouble if you roll back in with like a dirty school uniform or, you know, a messed up jacket or something like that. So it's one more layer of control. It's one more layer where you're probably not going to get too rowdy or out of line. Because if you do, that's probably going to cause your uniform to get messed up. If your uniform gets messed up, you've broken the social order and there's likely going to be a consequence for you. Yeah, I th it's just another subtle way to say we're watching you or just be careful. Don't try anything that's outside of what we would expect. Which again, too, is one of the, the bath waters or one of the negative ways that traditional school is sometimes viewed as it is really quite a controlling environment in some ways. Speaking of the control, we're saying that one of the positives of a uniform is to remove those unnecessary inequalities 
qualities and to save time from being wasted in a school about students bullying each other or bothering each other about their clothes. I guess ironically, one of the problems that uniforms create often for security-minded school is there ends up being a lot of fuss and focus on the tidiness of the uniform from the school. So it's like it's taken that problem away from being a student's problem of kids giving each other crap for what they're wearing to school to like the teachers or authority or administration having to make a real fuss about how the kids look and what they're wearing. Oh yeah, we've experienced it, both of us I'm sure, where we've been asked to check up on students' uniform and see if they're wearing the correct uniform and if not, letters home or emails or reminders. And and it's nothing to do with their academics. And this is, again, one of the strongest arguments that they hear against it, that there's, there's no academic reason for having a school uniform. Sure, it could signify that you are there and ready to learn, but in it in a practical sense, it doesn't really add anything. However, in the minds of some children, it does it creates that sense of order in some way. We talked a little bit about how the traditional school, one thing it will do is it will bring in students who are in that stage before the traditional, where they're maybe they're very impulsive and they're they're not necessarily looking for the order that school brings. And so this is for better or worse another way to say this is an orderly place. However, if you're past that and if you don't particularly need it, then really it can just be just a way to say you're not an individual per se, you're just a part of this group. Anything else to add to the uniform debate? It does rage hot in every school I've ever been in. From time to time, somebody will suggest getting rid of or adding a uniform. And it's usually just a few people with a really strong feeling. Yeah. So the next thing we looked at was the assemblies. This is a very common thing in most schools. So the children would head down to the gymnasium or the hall and they would sit and an assembly would unfold in front of them. What are some of the benefits of having school assemblies? Well, first, yeah, let's talk about what it probably looks like in the security-minded school. So typically, you'd expect that students are coming in following the rules or an established protocol for this. So students come in quietly in rows. They know where they're going to sit. And once everyone's sat, you know, you've probably got a teacher or someone coming up to address everybody and saying, you know, welcome. This is today's day. Don't forget we have these school events going on today. There's this club going on. And none of this stuff is likely new for students. There's probably a lot of repetition of what's happening within the school. This this sort of announcements portion is more about just reminders than it is about new information or catching anybody up on things. There's probably some reiteration of values. Maybe there's a school motto, a school song, these sorts of things. Now, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of it, and this could look very different depending which security school you're in, but what's likely going to be common is this will be almost entirely teacher-led. There's two ways this probably could look. One is it is an actual teacher standing up there and who is kind of the MC for the event and going through the information or calling up another teacher or sharing announcements, maybe reading a story. Now, the other side is you might see students saying things, or maybe even it appears as though they are running it, but really what's happening is it's still teacher-led because the teachers have maybe prepared some kind of script for the kids to read or essentially just told the kids what they have to say and maybe the kids just have a little bit of control in terms of their actual word choice of how they present it. So I guess the big idea here is at the security value level, an assembly that's going on is essentially run by the teachers and there's very little space for student voice or student work. And if there is, like maybe a kid gets up and shares, you know, a painting or sharing some work that has gone on in class, you're most likely just seeing the best. And it's been the teacher who's kind of told the kids that they were going to get 
get up and share their work or told the kids you're going to get up and perform this song or, you know, repeat this poem we've been practicing in class for everybody. It, it's pretty unlikely that a group of students had, you know, requested and been self-directed and, and negotiated to, to be able to present this. So in terms of babies and bathwater here, Brennan, what are some of the, the babies of school assemblies that we don't want to lose as we move forward in our reinventing of education? But what could we maybe leave at the, at the roadside here? So one of the things that we do gain from having these school-wide assemblies is that they do reinforce the values of the school, sometimes explicitly, but often within a traditional school, the values will just be tied into whatever's happening in the assembly, whether it's a, a local religious leader who's speaking or a story from the head teacher or even students presenting this prepared work, as you've said. It essentially says, this is our community, these are our values, you should be on board with them. It also brings, once again, idea of predictability and order. It reinforces that we are all here and we have a clear organizational structure. It also serves that purpose of sharing information in a place where it maybe is difficult to get information to the whole community. And there are things that we want to discuss. One of the things that might pop up a lot are uh, shared spaces like recess and breaks. And that might be something that might come up a lot in these assemblies to talk about what behavior might be expected. One of the big things that we began to ask started critique in our assemblies at school was the meaning behind it and the purpose. We're getting everybody together. One of the bathwaters of the traditional assembly style is everybody is sat in the room at the same time and none of the purpose of school, i.e. the learning, is happening explicitly. Sure, the, the students may be enjoying a story that may have a value embedded in it or they may be getting some information that may serve them at some point in the, in the school but they're sitting for two plus hours a week without explicitly learning anything. And so what we wanted to do, first of all, and I think you did this really well, is to bring character traits to the assemblies. So we started to explicitly talk about character traits that we did. And these were things like being kind, being knowledgeable, being caring, and they're very much in line with the learner profile that's at the core of the IB philosophy as well. And so the assemblies that you were kind of leading were explicitly talking about and, and showing examples of and doing activities based around these kind of character traits. And then what we began to do is to play around with the actual formatting of it and say, if the purpose is to get students to engage with these character traits, is sitting relatively passively going to really enable that to happen? And so we started to play around with the idea of doing assemblies on a cycle, two to three weeks, where maybe we'd look at one or two of these character traits together. Maybe students would look at them inside their own classrooms with teachers, do small mini projects with other students, and then bring them back together to share. And uh, I feel that that was somewhat successful at not only making those character traits explicit, but also bringing more meaning and learning to those, to those assemblies. Now, I would say if you're traditionally minded, maybe you would start to question that and, and say, well, this isn't the assembly that I have experienced. And we would want to ask ourselves also by going down this path, what would we lose from the traditional assemblies? I think we still kept that sense of this is a space where we're all in it together. And I think we also got the idea of order in there. We did it at a regular time and we worked through these regular kind of processes. But I think there wasn't quite as much of the head teacher giving longer speeches or the students standing in front and presenting work one by one. And there's always a space for bringing those things back in. This is how we talk about maybe the turning the dials up and, and down. So if we were in a security traditional school, we might turn down that amount of time that the head teacher spends in front of the children or that they're sitting somewhat passively and turn up that more kind of progressive end where we're handing over some agency to the students. And so in 2019, it seems that playing around with those kind of ideas makes more sense and would fit better with the wide range of students and needs we have in our school. We've talked about the effect it can have on the community and on the culture. But let's also talk about the effect it can have on 
the individual. In our experience, we've kind of seen like one of two extreme reactions. Maybe it has a calming effect, although sometimes it might be a bit of a, like a stopper in the bottle. So having the kids in a room for 30, 45 minutes and the expectation is that it's quiet in there can actually have like a really calming effect on people and like relax them and kind of put them at ease and give them something to, to basically be able to observe. Now, arguably, it might be, as we're sort of saying, a stopper in the bottle because they might be quiet then, but it's sort of like you've been pushing that down and there's that like tension release that needs to come. And I've often noticed there's some kind of like break after an assembly. And I think this is a bit of a, a mechanism to compensate for that, that like, okay, we've asked you to be totally quiet, a group of 200 of you for 30, 45 minutes, go run around and be crazy. Um, but I have also, oddly enough, seen the exact opposite of this, which almost seems medieval. And we can make some comparisons to the security value kind of emerging out of like feudal medieval values. And I have actually seen in a security school, almost like a medieval like public court where there's like jeering and cheering and like interrupting of the speakers and like a, you know, a real rally for control just to be able to say something. And interestingly enough, I've seen that as like an accepted part of the culture and just the way it is. Now there, to be fair, even in that context where I've seen it a few times, there is like eventually the kind of like rule of law where it's like, okay, now this has gone too far. We can be this way, but up to a certain point. But I'd say in the security school, you're going to see, I guess, one of these two extremes, either the completely silent crowd or the loud, jeering, cheering crowd. And I don't know, I, to make this a baby or a bathwater, I think that, again, you know, later on comes into the context of what you're doing. The content of what is being shared in this assembly, if you can really justify it to yourself, to the community, to the context of what you're all trying to do together, then sure, this kind of quietness maybe works for presentations. But what I would say, we don't want to lose the assembly moving forward, but I think it just needs a facelift. And I think, you know, things that you have particularly championed when we work together, and it sounds like are continuing to work on in your school now, make more sense for the assembly. And that's that an assembly is not a TED talk, or an assembly is not a thing where you sit passively and listen. I think the baby to save here is still have that assembly, but change what it looks like by making it more engaging for the audience, and perhaps deconstructing it that the assembly is happening, but not in one big room necessarily at once. It can be happening across several classrooms. Like applying the term assembly to that process now seems a little bit, it doesn't actually match anymore. It's something else altogether. It is just collaborative learning. And that's us hopefully being aware of what's working and what's not for our community. So here we're, we're kind of dancing around the idea of like actual teaching philosophy, like, okay, we've got this assembly, we have this whole school time, how do we go about deciding what to do in that time? What informs that? And I think this is a good time to switch over to the teaching philosophy that's behind a security school. I guess the main ideas here are curriculum as textbook and the sense of duty that's involved in the teaching philosophy. So the first piece of this, if we talk about curriculum as textbook, and we alluded to this in an earlier episode when we took a look at what was happening in the classroom, but that's more the practices, you could say, the practice aspect of school. We're going to switch now to a bit more of the, the culture around this and even like personal beliefs. So one of the personal beliefs reinforced by the culture is that teachers in a security school are largely sticking to the textbook. And oddly enough, the textbook almost acts as like an extra authority in the school because there's often a parental expectation that an entire textbook will be covered. And if there's a workbook that's associated with that textbook, that whole 
whole thing is going to be done. And any pages that are not filled in are either the result of a student not doing what they should be doing or a teacher not doing their job and covering everything that needed to be covered. And textbooks really do an incredible job of bringing order to chaos. If you have to teach a subject, you know, over the course of like nine months or 10 months, textbooks do a good job at like creating units and creating ideas in a series of little projects and little tasks that you can fill your lesson with. Now, there's almost like there is like a real respect of teachers at the security value. But another way I might say that is there's a bit of a blind faith in the security value that what's in the textbook is a good in and of itself. And the textbook begins to act as like I, I used this term this past week with somebody. It, it almost acts as a medium to the spirit world of curriculum. So the textbook is like one layer removed from the actual curriculum document that your government, whether that be provincial or nationwide, is handing out. So your nation has a curriculum, but an actual curriculum is tough to just walk up to and then draw what you need to do on the day-to-day level in your classroom. So it's kind of like the textbook works as this medium, like in a seance in between to go, okay, curriculum world, I'm not really going to actually engage with the specifics of what you say because it's either too abstract or too much work for me as an individual to organize into like 200 plus days of school for the year. So I'm going to take what the textbook has broken down as being what needs to be covered in the curriculum, because there is a trust that that's what the publishers are doing. And then I'm going to do what's in the textbook. And if I do what's in the textbook, I have upheld my duty to meet the needs of the curriculum. So let's first talk about the emphasis on a textbook, and then we'll get into that sense of duty that I'm kind of dancing around there. So one benefit, one baby here is using a textbook, but I would say not as your sole doctrine or the thing that's dictating or informing everything you do in class, but rather as a resource. You know, I as much as I knock using textbooks to do everything in class, textbooks are a great resource to go to for things, for activities, for reading passages, for for whatever. Um, so I feel like they are just one of the many things you could grab at the salad bar to put together your lessons. So I'm not saying get rid of textbooks, but I would say the baby here is to use a textbook, but just maybe not have it inform everything that you do. And in any kind of mainstream, current mainstream school or an opportunity school, that would work absolutely fine. So it holds true for the traditional school. It holds true for the mainstream school. It kind of falls apart with the progressive school in the sense that if you're in an inclusion school and you're trying to push inquiry-based learning, it by its nature is going to move very quickly dependent on what comes up in the conversations and where you want to go with it. And so in those kind of cases, what normally happens is you map your curriculum. It's more that the curriculum is is a reference document. You would map it against the units that you do. A textbook would essentially make it impossible to change course in the middle of your unit. So pulling back the veil here a little bit, what happens is that, you know, a traditional school or even an opportunity school, they would teach maybe 12 lessons on a particular topic or subject. And each of those 12 lessons would probably be covered in the textbook or it would guide you through the unit. That would not work for an inquiry that would look different each year, but is informed by the curriculum. So in 2019, no matter how traditional or opportunity-led your school is, there is a very strong case that the individuals in your classroom have their own take on this subject. And there's a space for asking them questions and following their interests and their paths to a greater or lesser degree. And there are some places where I need to cover these curriculum objectives and I need to cover them in this way. The danger being that if you fill up all of your time with those curriculum objectives that you have to cover, there is no space for students to have any say. One of the drawbacks or the the bathwaters of a traditional system is that there's not really any inclination to give students any say into their own learning. 
One of the things we also want to keep about the textbook is you are removing, as we're kind of trying to make the case, a really reasonable resource from yourself. And without a textbook, there is the chance or the danger that you're not actually engaging with the specific curriculum you're supposed to be upholding. And there's kind of an interpretation or just a random set of knowledge that's very dependent, depending on any given teacher. And I've seen this in security schools where you could have two grade five classes. And in one, you've got one teacher doing one set of things. And next door, theoretically in the same class, in the same school, you've got another teacher doing completely different things. And that's largely because they've been relying on what they think they should be doing. And maybe their tests don't even line up at the end of the unit. And, and if you were to take one student, put them into the first class, they might leave with a B. And the student who leaves in the other class and goes through that year leaves the class with a D, like because it's just so randomly different and not set to any set of expectations. So textbooks do help to act as a bit of an equalizer. Now, part of the reason security schools seem to value textbooks is it does bring that predictability. And typically textbooks come with a pretty thorough teacher's resource manual that will come with, you know, sheets you can photocopy to do exercises with and all these things so that a lot of a teacher's a lot of a teacher's planning is already done for them. And this is secure, predictable. You're not having to like reinvent the wheel every few months. Things are laid out for you. And this reinforces and serves that sense of duty the teachers have. And actually, just before I get into duty, there's one more thing where I do want to give textbooks a little bit of credit. One way that textbooks do serve a school's context is in a school where you have a lot of turnover. And I've been somewhat puzzled by this because I've seen what can appear to be relatively progressive private schools in particular especially in the international environment, that actually have a heavy reliance on textbooks to inform their teaching. And part of that is to meet the school's needs of saying that, you know, a lot of our teachers only come here for a year, two years, three years at most. And we need to be able to hand them something that can guide them for the brief period of time we're here. Because just as an institution, it's an incredible investment to like train people every year if we have to keep doing this. And especially in the international environment, you get a lot of people who are kind of wanting to work and travel and do all these sorts of things. So to be fair, a textbook largely meets that school's needs. Whereas if you had a context where we go, oh no, we don't use textbooks and we've got the school approach and it's probably going to take you the better part of kind of three to six months to kind of get used to it. And then next year you'll have kind of mastered it. And by your third year, you're going to be confident and up and running with this. That just doesn't work so well compared to the alternative of here's the book. It has your lessons. It has your unit plans. It has the activities you're doing. You're set up. You're secure. You're, you're stable, you can go for this. Teachers have a lot of skills and some teachers will be awesome at supporting their students and at planning individual activities, but maybe need a little bit more support in that structural or big picture. And so what a textbook does is says, here is what you need to cover for the entire year. And here is a bunch of activities that you can use if you so desire. And so as you say, it can be a resource. You know, a lot of people would talk about the curriculum. And as you said, very, very few people actually approach it and say, yep, I'm planning here or even as a parent who will mention curriculum often. Yep, I'm starting here. I'm going to read it. And so that when my when my son or daughter studies something, I'm going to know exactly what on the curriculum they're actually doing. So yeah, if you are doing a disciplinary 
mystery subject and it has a pretty specific body of knowledge, which is kind of what you will find a lot in a traditional security-minded school. A textbook is not a terrible place to start. However, it's such a limited resource in that it can provide you with a lot of activities and specific knowledge. What it cannot provide you with is that differentiation for the students that are in front of you. And so I've seen some textbooks that have attempted this. I had a math textbook once that would have uh, three sections within the same page. There would be, there'd be three color-coded sections for, say, a grade four fractions level in math. And they would have the three kind of levels and then the kids could start at any particular level. But the actual introduction or the curriculum objective will be very similar. But it's not something easy to do. What this helps to reinforce is that agreed upon shared body of cultural knowledge. And I listened to a little bit of Sasha Baron Cohen's talk he was giving about his complaints about Facebook. And he made a point to say, you know, when I sat down with Neil Armstrong, and of course, in full parody asked him like, so what was it like when you were walking on the sun? He said that joke works because everybody has the shared agreed upon set of facts that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. When there is just a shared body of agreed upon cultural knowledge, this is a place for a textbook, those specifics. And I think what you're saying when we get into these skills and the larger things of like inquiries and processes, then a textbook might be a resource in service of those things, but it's not as linear and not as concrete. So in the security value system, we have this adherence to the textbook as kind of organizing what's going on. Let's just wrap up by talking about this sense of duty in security. And essentially, I'd say there's kind of three layers of duty when it comes to the teaching and learning. And in the security value, the duty of the teacher is to teach the topic, to teach about the discipline, to teach the lessons. Now, we might start to bring a lot of ideas about what teach means. But essentially at its core at the security value, we're saying you have shared the information. You have talked about the topic. You have done an activity. You've given a lecture. You've done the thing. The information has been shared. And the actual learning in the security value is not the responsibility of the teacher. We'll begin to see that more when we shift into the opportunity value. But the idea is that the duty of the teacher was to present the information, make it public, make it known, verbalize it, share the key ideas. The real the real duty of the student is to learn and put that stuff in their head. And the effectiveness and the efficiency with which the teacher attempted to do that isn't really online yet. We're not going to get critical. The teacher has done their job. They did the lesson. They covered the thing on fractions. They talked about the names of the 10 provinces and three territories. It's now the student's duty to learn. And what that largely means is to basically put in your head, memorize the set of facts, have it sufficiently memorized. This is the banking method of education. The teacher has made a deposit and they will withdraw it later on a test. Now, should a student not be able to uphold their duty of meeting the demands of what they're being asked to do by the teacher now? As the teacher has done their duty, taught the lesson, now the teacher is saying, and now you're going to do this task. If the student's unable to hold up their duty of completing the task that has been asked of them, then the parents will step in. And we see this in a lot of school systems. Um, I see it particularly right now in the German school system, which I'm a part of. School 
roughly ends around 12.30 in most German schools, a lot of time in the afternoon for homework, and there is a real expectation that parents step up. If the student's having troubles, it's less so the responsibility of the teacher to make the accommodations to help the student move forward. That duty shifts more through the student back to the parents, and the parents really uphold their own duty, and they see a need for themselves here, and they, they see the role, and they see it as part of their duty to, to raise a responsible member of society to like to kick in and help out if need be. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations and I think it's taken me just up until recently to really realize what parents were asking when they're saying, what can we do at home? What they were really saying is, you know, how can I help with you, teacher, to, you know, bring my student up to the general overall expected level? So I think that's kind of the philosophy behind the way that the security school functions. Teacher's job is just to present the stuff. Student's job is to put that into their heads. And if that's not happening, largely that falls back to parents for additional assistance. Yeah, and just to wrap this up together, we've talked about the textbooks and we talked about duty. That philosophy of teaching of this is largely memorizing. It's a bit of a self-referential system here because we're kind of saying, well, you need this skill of memorizing now because later in school, you're going to have more stuff. It'll be harder because you're going to be expected to remember more stuff more often and more frequently. But when you actually get into the real world, the actual occupational preparation, the actual cultivation of citizenship, it's tough to find spaces where that's truly relevant. And I'll just wrap up with this idea of that memorization and those lower levels of comprehension, or perhaps if you're unfamiliar with Bloom's, an easier way to think of this is, you know, what's more complicated for a kid to remember the name of a state, to tell me some information about the state, or to compare that state to other states. So we're kind of saying the lowest level is just that memorization. Can you tell me the name of the state? Maybe you don't even know where it is or what's beside it, but can you tell me the name? And if you're only being asked to name 50 states on a test, that's less demanding than these other things. I'm saying that to connect it back to textbooks, largely text books, textbooks operate in that lower level of the thinking skills. It's a bit more memorization, maybe a little bit of applying something you've talked about. But that idea of the textbook being able to allow you to synthesize ideas from different disciplines or to synthesize ideas that aren't in the textbook is just essentially almost impossible. Or if it does, it probably doesn't set people up for great success in being able to do that in a meaningful way. Yeah. The idea of giving the information and then simply giving it back is at the lowest level of what we call Bloom's taxonomy, which is the attempt to talk about levels of comprehension. And so a student may remember and then be able to give it back. They may have some level of literal comprehension of it, but those higher level skills of applying that knowledge or synthesizing it with other knowledge or evaluating it, those are missing from the process. And those will come online in later educational systems. And so, yes, to say that this is an inefficient or this is a very limiting way to deal with information and skills and knowledge is the major critique of the banking kind of system and the traditional school system. So there's a little bit on the philosophy behind the security school. Yeah, I'd definitely like to come back to that. It's something that we have just begun to dig into, but it's the core of everything. Everything that we talk about within the school, this idea of duty of the student to learn, but learning in itself, meaning to take on board that disciplinary or that specific subject knowledge and then give it back when it's asked for. is a core idea in the traditional school. All right. Thanks very much for the discussion. Thanks, Brandon. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter. We're kind of building a community there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying. Into weed, we don't need to get into. These are weeds, we don't need to get into. Little 
Yeah. And if you've listened to this podcast for the last six episodes, you've now heard that six times and maybe you're better than we are. So please feel free viewers and listeners to record yourself, send it in, winners get a prize for Rob McLeod's clean-ish boxer shorts. I fuck. Fu- yeah. I fuck. Fu- yeah. I, yeah. I fuck. Fu- yeah. 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 Reverse sponsorship. A, yeah, I was almost just thinking it felt like we were flowing into our own thing, but yeah, let's abruptly stop yeah. the momentum of what we were doing. That's what I like. Mm. Put the brakes on. Uh,